Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where having a rowing coach only makes you better. Following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to our Faster Masters audience. And what a glorious week it's been. I don't know about you, but we are having definitely one of those Indian summers where the winds are low, the weather, air temperature is high, and it's just lovely. And we're getting 50 millimeters of rain. <laughs> so a it's a little bit like a spring. But in, in my case, I'm happy because it's going to melt the final ice. So it's, I'm OK. I'll take it. But it's only through tomorrow. Then it'll be then it'll be sunny and warm. Oh, good. Then it'll be sunny and warm. Now this podcast this week is brought to you by the Rowing Commentators Training Day. Two bright gentlemen from the UK are doing a global ticketed event to train up people who are interested in assisting at regattas by providing commentary services. Now, I will say they're incredibly professional because they are both world rowing commentators who work regularly at the FISA International Regattas. So Peter O'Hanlon and Robert Trahan-Jones are running the day. The cost is extremely modest. It's £15 and it is being run in person and virtually at Henley-upon-Thames this coming Saturday, the 9th of April. Tickets can be found at eventbrite.co.uk and just search for Rowing Commentators Training Day. And on a personal note, I do commend the event to you because Robert is the person who trained me for my commentary skills. And I have had the pleasure of commentating not only at local regattas, I also got to go onto the BBC during the 2012 Olympic Games as their in-studio expert for the BBC World News programmes, which was great because we got to do that moment, which you'll remember in the lightweight double skulls final, where the British guys went off the start, did a bad start, clipped a boy and claimed equipment failure and had the whole race restarted. And I got to oh. commentate that because it is only when the unexpected happens that mm -hmm. you really come into your own as a commentator. I think that sounds wonderful, actually, this day. Yeah, it's, it's good. It'll, it'll be great fun. And they're recording everything. So if you buy a virtual ticket, don't worry. You'll get plenty to do. And the thing I liked about it was the follow-up they're planning, In if you're in the UK, is you get to go to the National Schools Regatta, which is during May and is a three-day event. And you'll be partnered up with an experienced commentator. So you'll get to do some real practice live uh, at a really important event. Um, so I think that'll be a really good way of, of breaking in some, some new talent and um, discovering whether or not it's something that you enjoy. Now, we thank everybody who supports our podcast. If today you hear anything that you think is helpful or will assist your rowing, we would invite you to make a small donation to our ongoing overhead costs, fastermastersrowing.com forward slash podcast and subscriptions start at one US dollar a month. And 
now we move on to this past week where Marlene and I talk about the things that we do more broadly to advocate for Masters Rowing. So Marlene, what did you do? Well, on Saturday, I presented at the, the US, Rowing, U.S. Rowing Masters Conference. It was a one-day conference that had at least 20 speakers, quite a few speakers, um, talking about all different aspects related to master's rowing and master's training. And my presentation was called Age Well, Row Well. And um, because so many present presenters had done topics about muscle tissue and strength training and nutrition and hydration and all those things, I kind of brushed on those topics of what the aging process is there that affects us. But I really focused on joint protection, meaning your spine, your hands, your wrists, your ankles, your knees, how you uh, protect your joints with good rowing technique and why good rowing technique protects your joints. So I talked a lot about that. That was the main focus. And I also um, took a deep dive into rigging and concepts of rigging that are really important for for master's rowers. So that was kind of the focus of my presentation, which was late in the day, but um, you know, we had, a, we had a nice amount of people viewing. So it was quite a successful event for US rowing over Yeah, and I think the world first. I don't think there's ever been a master's only rowing conference that's open to everyone in the world. Yeah, I think this one, we, we did one back in 2020, with the first summer of COVID, which was a a virtual master's conference, but it was it was a training camp we did three days over, but it was only US rowing. So this was open, this was open internationally, and I think they had 2,600 registrations. That's pretty cool. I didn't know it yeah. was that many. Yeah, it was going up as the day was going on as well. That's so cool. And I also did a presentation at the same event. Uh, my was about how to manage a master's group for your club. And my talk took five key things that masters want. And I suggested ways that clubs can work out how to deliver them. And then interspersed with them, I put in real life scenarios. So I had asked some of the people that I'm connected with, what's one thing that you'd like to improve for masters rowing in your club? And then I brought up their comments anonymized and invited the listeners to think if you had this situation in your club, what could you do about it? So they were ranged from things like people saying, we have set times to row at these times on these mornings of the week and at these times of the weekends, but I would like to row in the afternoons. And so for a club management team or committee or a board to ask them, how might they accommodate uh, enabling masters to row at a non-standard time? And is this appropriate? And most of the remarks that I made tied back to first setting a strategy. Because if you don't have a clear strategy for your club, you won't be able to then say whether or not a request like that aligns. And it is very hard nay impossible to be everything to everyone so the overall theme of what I talked about was can we reduce friction in the organization of our master's group can we enable them to self-serve and that I think was quite well received because it included things like um, suggested 
rowing admin software that people could use and just anecdotes and examples of ways that other people have managed things. And as a result of this, um, one person uh, contacted me um, during uh, just afterwards and asked me about coxing. On the day, they said, you know, we have a real problem with getting coxswains for our group. And I suggested this as a way to help facilitate more cox boats. And the photograph you're seeing here is the seat that we, Michael in our club, devised. It is a plank of wood with screwed on top of it a sculling seat. Actually, the seat has a, a blue foam pad on the top of it. And the uh, plank sits across the gunnels in the coxswain seat area so that a person who is too large or is physically not able to crouch down into the coxswain seat can comfortably sit across the gunnels higher above the boat and cox a crew. Note it also includes a pink lanyard. This is important because the seat is not anchored in any way. It's just your body weight that sits on it. We found like one time that it, when the cox got out of the boat, it dropped in the water. And it was oh, floating away. So the lanyard is an important safety device and we just clip it onto the steering wire. So it, it just makes sure that, um, you know, you don't lose your precious equipment. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> So this is low-tech solutions, and it does mean that pretty much anyone of any weight can comfortably cox a crew. And Rebecca, what are those cool little straps next to the seat? Mm, so glad you asked, Marlene. So the other, uh, one of the other things that we talked about was equipment and having appropriate equipment for the size of your athletes. And if you have women in your club, you will know the biggest gripe is from ladies with smaller feet having to row in larger shoes. And these straps were made for me by a good friend from Aramaho Wanganui Rowing Club. Hello, you're out there saying hello. Um, and they are Velcro. And what they are is you wrap them around the instep of the over large shoe. So the black Velcro that you can see is the fluffy bit. And underneath the yellow uh, canvas is the spiky bit of the Velcro. And they are joined together with a white cord, which is a quick release strap, because obviously we need to have quick release shoes in rowing boats. And what you do is you literally just wrap this around so it binds the shoe tighter together around your foot. So how about that? Cool, yeah. So that, that's a two very, um, very low-key, low-tech solutions to common problems that uh, people can have in master's rowing and thank you very much to the lady who asked that question and then bothered to follow up and say what did you mean when you talked about a plank across the gunnel yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the answer that's what I meant well and, and that was timely because on Sunday I was talking with one of our club faster masters clubs at Sagamore Rowing Club and we were talking exactly about that issue of you know, people taking turns coxing and how everybody needs to get along and everybody needs to take turns. However, you know, the big thing was, you know, a lot of us are too tall to fit in that seat or we're too wide to sit in that seat. And I said, well, you know, Rebecca's got this nifty thing that her husband invented 
And uh, just before the podcast, I, I actually forwarded that picture to them and said, see, this is timely. So yep. I'm sure it's a and common issue. <laughs> I'm so sure it's a common issue. Um, and uh, you, you'll know that it's got wide adoption when you find the boat builders offering a sophisticated version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, continuing our theme of running through the stroke cycle, if you haven't picked up on this, we have been talking for the last three weeks about different parts of the stroke and how to execute them well. What are the common pitfalls and challenges that people find in different parts of the stroke and some drills and exercises that you might find useful. Before we dive into the entirety of it, I'd very much like to show my photo of the week. And here you can see Ant Perry and his son going out in a pair together in South Australia. And the grin on the son's face is just <laughs> marvellous. I think that must be the West Lakes course outside that looks, Adelaide. That looks very nice. Doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, when it was put up on the Masters Rowing International Facebook group, one of the comments was, hey, you should have your son wear a swim cap if you race. He's got too much air resistance with his expansive hairdo. <laughs> right, right, right. It's going to slow you down. <laughs> slow you down, exactly. Now, our part of the stroke cycle this week we're focusing on is the recovery. So, Marlene, when does the recovery start and end in the stroke cycle? That's a good question. Um, here's how I would answer that question. I think from our traditional biomechanical point of view definition, the recovery, the recovery begins when the blade exits the water. So you can think of the recovery as the entire time that the blade is out of the water until it returns to the water. I think that's that that's a pretty standard explanation or definition of the recovery. In practice, I like to teach the recovery as beginning when the knees start to rise. So last week we we talked about um, the finish position and the release and and carrying the, the release and then continuing through to the arms and body away. So technically the, the arms away and setting your body angle is part of the recovery till you get out to the, the perpendicular or maybe the crossover if you're sculling. Um, in a practical sense, I actually like to, to think of that as part of the acceleration phase of the stroke and I like to think, in a, from a teaching perspective, I like to think of the recovery once you break your knees and you start to let your wheels move, the boat is coming under you and you're approaching placing the blade in the water. So it kind of differentiates a little bit the rhythm, but, and, and it's something that people are, it's, it's easy for, for people to have this reference point. So I like to tell them, you know, think about rowing you know, perpendicular to perpendicular, or if you're in a sculling boat, crossover to crossover, because you have to move through those transition points, not row end to end. I think that, you know, that's a comp that's a rhythm we don't want to emphasize. Um, so I like to give the impression that the recovery begins once you've, once you've set your arms and your body angle, and then the crew's knees start to rise together. 
Um, but in pure definition, the recovery is the time that the blade is out of the water. I really like that because it begins at the point at which you have finished doing all that feathering thing. Yes. You have completed, you've got nothing to do particularly with your hands. You've got nothing particularly to do with your back. And actually it allows the focus to be solely on one thing, which is your legs, mostly. It's not quite true because, of course, you do have to square the oar before you put it in the water. But I find the finish is often the part of the stroke from when the oar comes out of the water and you release, you have to feather, you have to get your hands away. There's an awful lot going on there. And I like people, I like to teach the simplicity of the recovery being that you've pretty much done all your preparation for the placement at the catch already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, some common areas that really need attention on the recovery. So we get through all this stuff, like you say, we get the blade out of the water, hopefully. We feather, hopefully. But let's, let's start from the point that you have feathered. Common errors that I see are the oar is feathered and our oarsman or oarswoman starts the recovery and the wrists are still bent and underneath the handle. And I'm going to show you like this. And, and they're finding they get to the crossover. They don't have any room because their wrists are bent. But this is a big problem when your weight is under your handle. So once you, once you, you feather, even if you're, you are not perfectly feathering with your fingers and your wrist moves a little bit. Okay. We won't discuss that too much at this point, but once your blade is feathered and it is flat in the orlock, make sure that you bring the back of your hand up and you level out the back of your hand and your forearm so that you are above your weight is above your oar handles. And we, we've talked about this in the past, that it's very important to keep the weight above the handle so you have some weight in the hands. That, that's a critical point to keep you a little bit lighter on the seat, to keep your weight a little bit more dis distributed into the riggers. So I think that's something that everyone should check, that once you have feathered and that oar is flat in the oar lock, just let it sit there. You don't have to do anything. Just relax, you know, open your fingers for a, a bit and just relax that weight over the handles and stay above the handle. That's going to give you a much better feel for the boat and connection to the oar lock as you set your body angle. And it's then going to help you start to, to roll the oar handle when it's time to, to prepare the blade to put it in, which can be a point that um, that square up can really mess up people's rhythm if you're not careful. So it is something that's got to be practiced and timed, and you have to decide when you're going to roll up in your stroke or where your crew is going to roll up in your stroke. Marlene, can you explain that for sweep? Um, so for sweep, if you're if you're from the point where you release and feather. Mm -hmm. So if you release and feather, once you've feathered, then you want to make sure that your inside that your inside hand, which is your feathering squaring hand, your inside hand that you bring the back of your hand up so that so that your the back of your hand in your form is is feathered. 
for your hand that's on the end of the or handle, again, make sure that that you're in line, you're staying in line with the handle at the at the release position, but that your both hands are above the handle. So you're not carrying you're not carrying the handle with your inside hand bent like this. And then I'm going as, to disagree with you. Sorry, I have to pitch in. Uh -huh. I believe the inside hand should stay in the feathered position in sweep and your outside hand should behave exactly as you describe with the flat wrist with the weight above the handle because you control the height of the handle entirely with your outside hand in sweep and i believe if you do what you've just described you'll end up doing like a double square feather on the recovery so you actually need to leave your outside your inside hand loose grip but with the wrist cocked so that as you come forward and you're ready to square it's ready to roll the blade square and then achieve the flat forearm for the power phase. Yeah. But maybe this I, is yes. a stylistic difference. Well, I think it is a stylistic difference because I've been coached to just, um, and, and Steve Gladstone coaches very much the inside hand. He coaches to feather very much like we, we, we feather with the sculling or so keeping it a little bit loose. I think what we're looking for here is not as much as what is the mechanics, but where's your weight? And are you keeping, you know, yeah. are, are you are you able to keep that weight into the orlock as you move around the pin and you stay on the arc? So if that can be achieved solely with the outside arm, that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the point is, is not to be sitting heavy in your seat and to be able to, you know, to be able to, gracefully start to square the blade up and have that. And, and now there's, there could be a difference here of how big your hand is, how big your oar handles are. Um, you know, if you're rowing with a little bit of a smaller sweep handle, you can, mm. you know, you, you might be able to just have a little, a little flick of the fingers because you don't, you don't really have to hold the handle all that much um, mm. because the outside hand is controlling it. But I think what you want to look for is you want to, you want to look for, somebody keeping their posture and their weight up over the handle and not like sitting down on the seat like a sack of potatoes. Very much so. So I want to move on to the next bit, which we might call a common error, which is the point at which you release your knees. Can you describe this for us? I think different coaches prefer slightly different timing for this. Um, you know, some, some coaches let you do it a little earlier compared to your body angle versus other coaches. So I think this is where you might see stylistic differences in terms of, um, you know, it, it's, you don't need to have your body over until a quarter slide. Some people like it a little bit earlier. Some people don't care until it's half slide. Um, my personal my personal preference is to make sure that that the hands have passed the knees and that the body the body is shifted. I I tend to be a little bit more strict about this because I think if people don't get their body over, they simply don't, and then they try to they try to achieve that as they're putting the blade in the water, which is which is going to create a lot more problems. Um, I think it also depends a little bit what stroke rating you're you're rowing, but when you release your knees, release them gently, you know, and, you know, remember the boat is coming underneath you. So even if you do nothing, your heels and your feet are still coming 
towards you. And I think it's, we've talked about this in the past. I think it's important to realize the direction that the boat is traveling. You know, you don't want your weight flying up to the stern. Think about yourself as you're sitting quietly on the seat and you're, you're helping and you're bringing the boat underneath you. So I think, I think it's important when you break your knees that you're, you're still being, being sensitive to the run of the boat and not trying to overpower it. I totally agree with you about getting the hands and handles past the knees. Um, I do not believe that you have to have a complete body rock completed before you release the knees and start to move on to the slide, um, slide part of the recovery. Uh, but getting going back to what we were talking about last, last week, getting your arms out straight before you start the body rock for me is critical and is a place where blending that movement has many more negative ramifications than the athlete can really appreciate until they unlearn that action and begin to see how much rhythm they can generate with leading the recovery with the handle. Let the handle be the thing that goes first back towards the stern of the boat. And that really means that your arms have to lead it and then your body will naturally follow. And then you release the knees softly, exactly as Marlene described, and your legs will slowly compress in exactly the same ratio as to the speed of the boat, which is drawing the handle. Well, and, and what we need to keep in mind, I'm speaking from a coach from a teaching point of view. And I think if you don't teach that complete body angle from the beginning, they won't get it. They just yeah. never, they never get it. So I'm, I'm strict about teaching it. Now, I think in practice, when you're rowing, it's going to be slightly different depending on what stroke rate you're rowing, right? If you're rowing 32 strokes a minute, it isn't going to happen quite that way. It's going to be a little bit, it's going to be more blended together the higher your stroke rate goes, but you still have to get those arms out. And as you, and you know, the, the whole proponent of the dynamic recovery, which is not what we're talking about here, but the dynamic recovery that is talked about a lot is a racing technique where there is a slight pause at the release. And then there's a, a very fat, like an increase in speed on the recovery to put the blade in the water. And if you look at the first half of the recovery from the release to the crossover, the body parts are all sort of partly somewhere, right? There's no distinct part that's sequenced or leading. It's, it's more of, a, of almost like a whole body motion. Um, but that is a, a racing technique. It's done at very high, it's, it's at very high rates. It is not how we typically train lower rates. So you have to, and you need extremely good blade work skills to get the timing at the front end. You, if you are not a highly skilled with your blade work, you absolutely cannot use that technique successfully because then it just becomes rushing the slide, which is not what the dynamic recovery is. So, you know, so you, you have to look at things in context, you know, what's the skill, where, where's the, you know, is the crew moving together? You know, you need to define when the crew starts their knees rising together so that they're moving together. So, you know, you have to, um, I think, you know, you have to 
to take each individual's body and technique and adapt it a little bit. I don't think everybody's going to be exactly the same as how they approach the recovery. I think it's going to depend a little bit on the, the physiology of the crew too. I, that, that, that's the reality. Until you start cloning rowers, which is a very bad joke. <laughs> so. Now, the recovery has another very important part in its contribution to your overall boat speed. If you think about the speed that you can currently row or scull at today and you want to go faster, there is a very major contribution that the recovery can make overall to how fast you can propel your boat. And it is the opposite of what you would expect. You can go faster in your average speed if you can slow the boat down less on the recovery. And if you think of your boat speed as a sine curve, so it goes up initially as you put the power on with the blade in the water, and then you release at the finish, and then the boat speed is going to slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, until you put the blade in at the next catch, at which point it begins to accelerate again. Now, if you can, if you're strong, you can increase the peak of that force curve, and that will contribute to increased boat speed. But if you can reduce the dip of the recovery point, you can also increase your average boat speed. And I think this is a point that is often overlooked mm -hmm. by people. hundred percent. think yep. it's all about power and it's not about finesse. Exactly. And, and if you think of, if we take two crews or two, two boats, two scholars, they, they may have equal scores on the ergometer, but the ergometer only measures the drive. It does not measure the recovery and it does not penalize you for bad technique, only measures the drive. Now we take those two crews and we put them on the water. They have equal drive power. However, the crew that has the better blade work, the crew that has the better recovery, meaning they keep the boat running better, they do not lose as much speed as Rebecca's talking about, that crew is going to win. So the crew that has the better recovery, given two equal drives, is going to win the race. So, you know, the first way to go faster is to learn how not to slow down. And I'm going to talk now a bit about one thing and drill that you can do today or tomorrow when you're next in your boat that can help you see whether or not you can improve your recovery and slow the boat down less. First, I want to start by talking about the ideal state that you should be in and the recovery. So you do need to be in a position where you have got weight on your feet. And I'm not going to explain how you've all heard us often enough explain that. So you need to have your handle past your knees. You need to have weight on your feet and you need to have released your knees. So the seat is just beginning to turn the wheels and roll forwards. Your body positions must be poised. They need to be light on the seat so that you're sitting up tall, not like a sack of potatoes. And they need to be um, in the correct body angle if possible or moving towards the correct body angle for the placement at the catch, because you want to have minimum movement while you're on this part of the recovery. 
in addition, you need to be super relaxed. So relaxed is not slumped and being like a sack of potatoes. You need poise plus relaxation. And that is a hard thing to do because one of the things that you're trying to do on the recovery is to rest, take time off from effort. And one of the problems with the rowing stroke in its secular nature is that you have exerted effort and your muscles are tight and aggressively compressed and activated when you're in the power phase. And the challenge when you come on to the slide rolling part of the recovery is how to turn off those muscles, let them go loose, floppy, deactivated without losing that poise. Any remarks before I move on to the drill, Marlene? Yes, I, I would say, you know, when we talk about relaxed, as we're not talking about like be a, a sack of potatoes on the seat. Poise is, I think of it as a position that doesn't have a lot of tension. I think of, I think of it a little bit more that way. Um, and, and I think it's important that you feel that you feel this and, and particularly strength training can help with this skill of activating and then releasing tension from muscles, activating and releasing tension from muscles, because that is a, an athletic skill that needs to be trained. And it's not something that you will do if you're not aware of it. So, for example, in cross country skiing, there's different strides and different strokes. But when you're you're a competitive cross-country skier, you are constantly thinking, what can I relax now? I can relax my shoulder. I can relax my foot. I can relax my back leg. I can relax this arm. I'm pushing with that arm. So you're, you're always kind of scanning your body for what small muscle group can I relax right now? Because that's going to give you economy and efficiency. And you have to do the same, same thing in the boat. And strength training can help enormously with that because you are doing your lift and then you're relaxing. You're doing your lift and then you're releasing tension because you 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 need to practice that. And that's something to be aware of on the recovery. So now I'm going to talk a bit about a drill that you can do. You can do it on your own. You can do it in a crew boat. It doesn't matter. The drill is about achieving what Marlene has just really carefully described. Before you start the drill, sit stationary in the boat. And I want you to uh, move to like half slide so your legs are part way bent. And what you're going to do is you're going to take your hand and you're going to go and hit the underside of your calf and your thigh muscle and just hit them and make the muscles really last, waggle them around. You want to have a feeling as if the muscles are kind of dripping off the bone, like they're really deactivated, they're super, super loose. The reason for this is until you know what the feeling is that you're trying to achieve, it's pretty hard to do when you're actually rowing. So it's best to um, educate yourself as to what it feels when the muscles in your legs are super loose when you're just sitting in the boat and you're not moving at all. Now, the drill 
is one that I call the jelly legs exercise. And I've probably mentioned this before, but I coined the phrase when I was teaching juniors and it needed to be fun and engaging and jelly sounds sounds nice. I think you probably call it jello in America, but you, know, <laughs> you, you, you get the idea. The drill works like this. You row off normally, you need to have a, a competent pressure. So start by doing this drill at at least a half pressure. And when you call the start of the drill, you're going to do 10 strokes that from the moment you have your knees just popped up, you're going to try and relax your leg, thigh and calf muscles into that jelly state while you do the recovery. So don't worry about rating. All you need to worry about is have I got a good pressure during the power phase, at least half pressure. And then when I get the weight on the feet and my knees pop up and my legs are no longer straight, move into a jelly legs feeling for the recovery. And do this for 10 strokes. Then move back into normal rowing or sculling, however you would normally move. And notice the contrast. Notice the difference between how you normally row and how you row when you're trying to super relax and remove tension from your legs. Then do the drill again. You need to do this at least three times. I recommend the second time that you do, you want to do like three sets of 10, then go and do something else and then come back and do it. I do recommend that you increase the pressure as you get more skillful. You need to be able to row at firm pressure, low rate, and still do the jelly legs on the recovery. And what happens as a result of this drill is that you, you get onto the slide, you release the knees, and because you have this deep relaxation and lack of tension in your legs, what happens is that if this hand is the boat and the boat is moving in that direction, is that your slide just moves at exactly the same speed as the boat is pushing it along. And you can see my hands are moving in opposite directions to each other. But what is actually happening is that the slide, you're not pulling yourself into the catch. You're letting the forward acceleration of the hull be the thing that, that pushes your knees upwards and rolls that slide forwards so that you are sliding in perfect time with the boat. Now, you may never have done this before. And this is why it is such a wonderful thing to do if you've never done it uh, before, you will feel the most amazing feeling of poise, relaxation, ease. You will just feel like you are floating towards the front end of the boat. And you will feel that perhaps the rating is a little lower than you might normally do. But by the time you arrive at full compression, you've squared your blades and you're ready to put the oars in the water and start the next power phase you've given your muscles a real, real rest. And that is the key to going faster. Both the relaxation, which is not slowing the hull, and the fact that because you've given your muscles a rest, they can work harder on average in the power phase that then follows. Yeah, so that's really legs. Mm -hmm. Go, Marlene. No, I was going to say that's really, really critical because you need to give those muscles a brief rest at some point in the stroke cycle. So, so you give them the opportunity to gather the energy for the next, for the next drive. 
And this sets you up for the top of the slide. And I like Rebecca's image of, you know, the intersection, but, you know, the boat is coming under you. You're in time with the boat. Now I'm going to caution you, don't chicken out at the top of the slide. Okay. So everything's going beautifully, beautifully. And your handle swinging around the pin. Imagine you're in an eight. Your, hand, your handle swinging around the pin. Your handle moves over the gunnel. And then what happens? The seat stops, the body drops forward, and you miss the timing. Okay. The recovery continues until the blade is in the water. So you must take this feeling of what Rebecca is talking about, and you must continue to compress. You'll be slowing down because the boat is slowing down. You must continue to follow around your oarlock. You must continue to stay on the arc and not lose that when you start to square the blade and place it in the water. It's very easy to forget or not be confident and to stop those wheels a little bit too early and then you have missed water so, so i like don't, to don't spoil next week because we're going to talk about the catch next week correct but. correct but just this is just conceptually start thinking about this you need to continue the recovery until mm. the blade enters and how are you going to do that we'll talk about that next week so after you've done this drill a couple of times, I have a suggestion for a, a call or a focus point that you can bring into your rowing after you've begun to understand what this poised relaxation feeling is. And the call is this. On the next stroke, we're going to decrease the tension by 1%. And so it brings everybody's mental focus onto this rolling seat part of the recovery and you really just thinking about can I lower the tension by just one percent a tiny little bit and then see if you can do it all together simultaneously as entire crew and I do recommend that you practice this entire thing as a whole crew if you're in a crew boat because it's very hard to feel the glide feeling if you've got people sitting out um, and not rowing so that's your last piece. Can I decrease the tension 1%? Easy, huh? Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know that Marlene and I have utterly stunned our audience uh, because we haven't had a single question from anyone who's watching live, which is cool. They're all telling us where they are and where they're watching from, which is delightful. But actually... I think the recovery is one of the hardest parts of the stroke and to do it well and to still get yourself relaxed, poised and then ready for the catch is a real, real skill. And it is a finesse that's fantastically difficult to teach to beginners. And as a coach, I don't bother. I let beginners race up and down the slide because fundamentally handling the oars, the squaring, the feathering, watching the timing of the person in front are much more important skills to learn in the early days of your rowing adventure. And also, until you've acquired a certain amount of skill there, you can't put any work on. And if you can't put any work on, you're not going to appreciate the finesse that we're talking about today. 
we now have a random question. Do I ever row in sixes in an eight? All the time. Absolutely. So part of our warm up, and I row regularly in an eight, is we'll warm up in fours, we'll very quickly move into sixes, and our sixes aren't necessarily in the obvious pairs. So if we say you've warmed up stern four, you warm up bow four, as they're coming to the end of the warm-up sequence, the next thing that will happen is probably five and six will join in and they'll row in a six. Then seven and eight will join in and bow pair will drop out and we'll row again in a six. And then our coxswain likes to do a variant on that where they'll say stroke drop out and two join in. So you've actually got the middle six of the boat and people at either end sitting out. I will say we don't very often row in sevens, except when we have a very, very tight corner, uh, sometimes in a race situation. If anyone's ever done the head of the Yarra, if anyone's uh, I, I was going to talk about that sculling race in Switzerland, but um, I know that's singles only. So reasons to row in a seven is when you have a very tight corner to turn and your rudder is insufficient or you want to take a tighter line than the steering will enable. You could have one person uh, drop out in someone in the stern. It will probably either be seven or eight. And what I would say is not actually to drop out, but to go really, really light pressure. If you need them to actually drop out, I would have them run their oar along the surface of the water so that they still move backwards and forwards in time with everyone else in the boat. Um, and they're not disrupting, you know, the rowing movement per se. Um, a reason to row in sevens is hard to find um, unless, and sorry, this is an extremely bad rowing joke, uh, but legend has it that there's a coach who said to his one of his athletes, a ham sandwich would be faster than you. And then <laughs> legend has it, they seat raced a ham sandwich against this person and the ham sandwich won. Oh, dear. So I, that's I terrible. <laughs> Well, you know, I think I think old rowing jokes never go away. Um, and uh, I did actually I did actually find a link to some of the um, most um, entertaining, but definitely not safe for work abuse that coaches <laughs> have been known to say to their crews. And it's on the uh, the Tideway Slug website. Yeah. Another question. I'm just joining in here. Thinking of bringing your knees up to meet you when sliding forwards and stay quiet on the upper body. Beautiful. That's yes. a lovely description. Quiet on the upper body because you don't need to move it because you've already got your arms away. Your handles are past your knees. Your body is beginning, is rocked forwards. That's a really, really nice way to think about it. Thank you. Yes, mentally you have to separate. If, if, I'm, if I'm going to be extremely simplistic here, there's part A and part B. Part A, arms and body angle. Part B, allow the knees to come up, keeping the body the body stable. And this takes a lot of practice because you have to differentiate what the upper body is doing and what the lower body is doing. You have to do one thing and then hold it stable, do the other thing and hold the other part stable. So you have to you have to understand the way the boat is going, the dynamics of the boat, and what you're trying to achieve with your body weight and your rhythm. So, um, you know, I think 
thinking about your upper body and lower body and then understanding that they're doing two different things at the same time and practicing that is is really critical. A follow-up question about rowing with seven or six people in an eight. What about if a rower doesn't show up and there's a vacant seat? So yes, absolutely. I never ever cancel an outing because somebody didn't show. What I will say is that in order to get the boat um, to run well, it's best to leave that vacant seat in three or four rather than bow pair. You might think that leaving it as bow pair is a good idea, but actually you need the body mass of people up in the bows to get the boat to run level. Otherwise, people end up feeling like they're rowing terribly high because, of course, you're short the weight of one athlete or possibly two. Similarly, in a quad or a four, you can't go out in a four with only three people. Just doesn't work. Really sorry. Um, but what I would say is our club um, has a has coxed fours, which we have converted to dual steering so that um, we all our coxswains can row. Um, they don't often some some don't do it very often so <laughs> that you can put your coxswain into the boat. And we basically have um, a, a clamp. So we have two sets of steering wires going to the rudder. One is for the classic coxswain who sits in the stern and moves the wires. And the other is you have a steering foot in the stroke seat and you can unclamp the, um, the lever on the stroke seat. So it releases the steering wires and they'll just move freely. And the person will have a shoe that will move, but it won't be doing anything when you've got a coxswain in the boat. We haven't got a coxswain in the boat. The boat does sit a little higher because it's, of course, a cox boat designed to have five people in it, uh, not four. Um, but then you can have these uh, steering from stroke um, and just leave the cox's seat empty. If it's really bad, you could put a couple of weights in the in the cox's seat. If you've got like a couple of 10 kilo weights, um, put that in. Um, but you don't actually need to do that. Well, there we go. The stroke cycle in now three easy lessons and shortly to be four because we're definitely going to do more next week. <laughs> Thank you again to everybody who's been listening with us live, to everyone who will be listening not live. And please, if you have heard anything today and found something that is useful for your rowing, please consider supporting the Faster Masters Rowing Radio podcast with a small monthly donation. Go to fastermastersrowing.com forward slash podcast to make your contribution. This has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio, the show dedicated to masters athletes who want fun, fitness and confidence in their rowing. You can become a student of the sport today by buying a Faster Masters Rowing program subscription at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. And from Marlene and myself, till next week, bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>